Amen. Why don't you take your Bibles with me today and open up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. The 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, we are going to be looking at verses 31 to 35. 31 to 35. Hear now the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 31. The Word of God says, Therefore, when He had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and will glorify Him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray one more time together. Heavenly Father, we come before you now. We bow in the light of your majesty. Thank you for the glory of the reality of Christ alone. Solus Christus, as the reformers would say, that in him we have all that we need, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place, every ounce of righteousness that we need to stand before you, accepted in the beloved, comes to us from him. And Lord, amazing grace, Lord, that you would condescend and that you would sovereignly choose to deliver such wretched, miserable, hopeless deaf, blind, and dumb sinners such as us. And Lord, you saw us in our sin and in our misery, and you pulled us up, you plucked us out, you cleaned us up, and you made us to stand. And Lord, every single one of us that has undergone that miracle of regeneration, a miracle of conversion by your sovereign grace, now stands in union with your Son and... As part of that union, we now stand in union with each other in your body, the body of Christ. And because you have put us in the body of Christ, O Lord, you give us this command that we love one another even as you have loved us. O Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand, to unearth the depth of the meaning of that to repent of our lovelessness and to obey your commands. Father, we pray that you'd help us, Lord, not just to hear the word today, O Lord, help us to be doers of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
Today, I want to focus our attention on an aspect of ecclesiology that is always relegated to the realm of practical theology, that is, pastoral theology. Anytime we talk about the body of, of, the, of, of the church, anytime we talk about the membership of the church, and anytime we talk about the ministry of the church, we're talking about this theology that Scripture calls the one another's of Scripture. And that really is our focus today. Now, um, understand that in the Bible there are endless passages of Scripture that provide for us the foundations of what theologians identify as the one another's of Scripture. And we could go through a whole list of one another's in Scripture. Um, The Bible tells us Very plainly, not only love one another, but it tells us serve one another, be hospitable with one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, rebuke one another, teach one another, on and on and on and on it goes. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so the one another's of Scripture are essential for what it means for a healthy church to thrive and to grow into its divine calling and into its purpose. But I want to do today is I don't want to just go through a list and rattle off all the one another's of Scripture. I want to go deeper. And so I want to go to something seminal, something foundational, uh, something that undergirds like the bedrock underneath all the one another's theology to get to the preeminent one another command in the Bible, which is Love one another. Why do I take you here to John 13? And why did I start where I started? Because if you were paying attention, I began in the the mutual glorification of the Father and the Son and the work of redemption. As if that has something to do with the command to love one another. Well... I blame John. He put it in the context. And so our duty is to find out what it, what it is about this one another theology that is connected uh, to that. And therefore, we have to understand love in its proper context, what it really is. And so in the course of everything that we'll do here, we're going to be looking at different aspects of this love, but we, we begin today with the origin of of this love, what we could call the divine counsel of love. Understand, go back to verse 31, that this verse, verse 31, is dealing with a divine counsel. We could even say the inner Trinitarian counsel of God. Prior to time, prior to the creation of the world, prior to the creation of any man, prior to the foundations of the world, as Paul says there in Ephesians 1. Prior to all of that, back of all of that, back of redemption, back of creation, back of heaven itself, was the self-contained, self-sufficient, all-sovereign, ever-existing, eternal, all-loving God. And who did He love? He loved Himself. In an inter-Trinitarian fashion, Father, Son, and I would say probably in agreement with Jonathan Edwards, through the Spirit. The 
persons of the Godhead were in this mutual, reciprocal, eternal, infinite, boundless communion of love. Love so divine, so pure, and so infinite that we cannot possibly ever come to the bottom of it. Understand, whatever you know of love, whatever I know of love, whatever we can discern as finite creatures, even through the revelation of God, is but a flicker of the depths, the boundless depths of the bowels, the recesses of the divine love of the triune God. I don't think we quite comprehend what led to John. Same theologian in this book as in 1 John when he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. What's that saying? That saying is you cannot understand love without God. And you have never truly seen love until you see God. And if you want to know what love is, look at God. That's what he's saying. Marvelous. In this context, we can also understand that this theocentric love forms the foundation of what becomes Christian love, uh, becomes the foundation of what we are to operate in as the church in this love. And it's a deep and profound love. It's, it's, it's nothing like the superficial love of so many today. Obviously, our world, our culture, our society, forget that kind of love. That love is often confusing. You know, the Bible has uh, different word groups for love, eros, phileo, agape, all of these terms for love, and they're distinguished so as not to confuse. You know, the English word has one word for love. Well, the way I love my wife is differently than the way I love my dog, but by the grammar, You only got one English word for both kinds of love, okay? But not in the Bible. In the Bible, we have a multiplicity of vocabulary to understand the love of God. And so what the world confuses with erotic love, the Bible speaks of in terms of a holy love, a divine love, of a pure love, of a sanctified love. And that is the love that you and I are to bestow on one another. It's that type of holy love. Now, for John, all of this theology actually crystallizes and actually it ascends in intensification as these farewell discourses will roll on here, chapter 13 all the way to chapter 17, but that that theology of love will grow, mature, intensify, and crystallize the more we uh, go along. I'll give you an example of this. Look in your Bibles here to John chapter 15 just to understand how this goes here. Ready? John chapter 15, verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. And here's the command. Abide in my love. Jump down to chapter 17 of this book. John chapter 17, verse 23. Uh, You know this passage, but he says here, and I have no time to develop all these verses, but I and them, you and me. What's that talking about there? What what he's saying is the Father, this is, remember the whole verse, the whole chapter begins with Jesus' prayer. Oh, righteous Father. That's the beginning of the chapter. 
And then, this is the, by extension, this is his prayer, that I would be in them, that you are, just like you are in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And this is why I was compelled. Even as you have loved me, well, then Jesus reaches back into the corridors of eternity, that eternal triune love. He reaches back that to now confront us with the way in which God loves us today. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see what I'm saying now? Verse 26, I have made your name known to them. What does that mean? That doesn't mean Jesus went around saying Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. To make your name known to them means I have expounded to the people who you are, your nature. Um, D.A. Carson says that the name is synonymous with all that God is. That's great. I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Isn't that marvelous? Christian love does not begin at the point at which you and I dispense it to each other. It has been deposited within us, but we are not the origin of it. It originates actually quite outside of us, and therefore we can say that this is a agape extranos. It is a love outside of us, alien to us, foreign to us. You know what this implies, brothers and sisters, is that you and I, we are not equipped with the kind of love that we need to dispense on one another. It needs to be given unto us. It needs to be deposited into our hearts to truly have Christ-like Love, to love the way Jesus loved, that is a divine affair. That is a transcendental affair. That is something that we don't have within of our, in it of ourselves. That means that any expression of love that you see on planet Earth, whether of a parent to a child, whether a brother to a sister, whether a father to a son, whatever, a neighbor, friend, anything, think of all the depths of the love. Those loves are not the love that the Bible is talking about. This is even further than that, deeper than that. It is supernatural. It is spiritual. It is wrought by the Spirit of God Himself. After all, He is of the very essence of love. And therefore, we don't just have, in a sense, the divine love of God, but there's also here a promise. We could even say something of the longing of love. Look back at John, John 13, 33. Little children. Don't you love how Jesus calls you a kid? <laughs> it's a term of endearment that Jesus had for his disciples because that is what we are. We're just little children trying to learn the Father's will. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that would have been to hear that? You've just been walking for the last, I don't know how many years here, several years here. You've just been walking with, sitting with, eating with, conversing with, communing with, fellowshipping with the most beautiful, 
humble, loving, holy, righteous, pure, wise person in the universe. And he tells you, I'm only with you for a little longer. Wow. But he says, you will seek me. And as I told the Jews, I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And so this may feel as if love deferred. Where is it going? The object of our love. And therefore, this love is as much, es- as much eschatological as it is anything. It is the love that propels us to love in hope. Think of Peter's words. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Have you ever felt that? Is that how you feel about your Savior? Or are other things in this world filling you with, quote, joy inexpressible and full of glory, but not Jesus? That makes me wonder, have you really been touched by divine love? Has the Spirit really put it and deposited it into your heart to love God as you ought to? Jesus is both the source and the object of our love. He gives it to us and He wants it back from us. Our love comes from Him. And then it is set on Him. In His absence, the streams of His love in our hearts The love that He deposited in us by His Spirit now leads us by the Spirit as it longs to return to the very fountain from whence it came. To love one another, brothers and sisters, to serve one another, this what we do in the interim between the ages, this age and the age to come, this love, this hope, All of it is what it's done in hoping to see and to savor Jesus Christ. As we wait eagerly for God's Son from heaven, we are not left without a tangible object of our love. We are now to love Him, listen now, by loving one another. Right? Isn't that what He does in the text? He says, look, the ultimate object of your love. Here I am. It's only one problem. I'm only with you for a little longer. And then, boom, to the cross, in the grave, up from the grave, into heaven. And I will not be with you anymore until the age to come. But what happens now is that Jesus, He provides a New command, and that new command is not keep loving me, but remarkably, (laughs) by way of total shock and surprise, in order to supplement the deference of this love, he gives us a new object, as it were. Love one another. (laughs) Why is that? Because in loving one another, we are, brothers and sisters, loving him. What does the king say? Matthew 25, verse 40. 
the king will say, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these my brothers, brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Every time you serve somebody in the church, every time you pour a glass of water, every time you serve a meal, every time you're hospitable, every time you bring people into the church, every time you pray for people in the church, serve people in the church, you go mow people's lawns, whatever it is, provide a meal to a sick person in the church, you need not doubt that you are serving your king. And that's how personal he takes it. If, as we saw couple weeks ago, if persecuting the church results in in Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? Then loving the church, serving the church results in loving him, serving him. Isn't that glorious? You see why I'm not up here today with just a list? There is a theology here. Now, Let's come to it at last. The command of love. You have the origin of divine love. You have the promise of love as we long to love the object of our love, Jesus. We long for Him and rejoice even though we don't see Him. But now, let's look at the command of love because this gets to the very manifestation of the love that we are talking about. Now, the main thrust of the passage is the way that this theology directs us in Scripture to all the one another's. Again, this is like the bedrock. The first thing to see here is that there is an explicit, overt command, love one another, which constitutes, verse 34, a new commandment. Now, of course, it's not that Prior to Jesus uttering these words, there was no commandment to love. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor. Okay, But in light of the new covenant application of Jesus Christ, John is now conceiving, or Jesus teaching in John, of love conceived in a new way. In light of Him, in light of the new covenant. You know, John was so struck by this. Turn with me to 1 John, verse 2. John was so impacted by this that even in his latter years, long after this was spoken by the Lord, even in his latter years, he never got past this command. He never got over it. You know, uh, I, I like this about John. Uh, 1 John chapter 1 you know, uh, he describes himself, and maybe in Second John, but he says, you know, you're elder, you're, you know, he's old. <laughs> and the commentaries there are saying, he's not saying you're presbyteros, he's not saying you're episkopos, he's saying, you know, yeah, uh, you're old <laughs> pastor, because <laughs> he's probably writing these letters when he's, you know, 80, 90 years old. God bless him for not getting lukewarm in old age. He ain't backing off, you know. He might not be able to go on all of Paul's wild missionary journeys anymore. But man, he can write theology and convict you with it. 
I like that. Need a little old zeal. <laughs> well, I'm reminded of uh, George Mueller, you know. After years of ministry, it's convicting to me. I probably 30, 40 years already of ministering in the church. He turns 80 years old, and what does he decide to do? I know. I'll become a missionary <laughs> at 80 years old. I told Trish, I don't know how Donald Trump does it. No, no, hold on. He jumps on a, he jumps on a plane, goes from one place to another, gets up there, preaches his sermon passionately, rousing, you know, applause. To who knows what he's saying, you know. But he's just up, and he's just going place by place by place in a suit. I get tired just putting on a suit like that. Jumping on Air Force One, flying all over the country, talking to a thousand people. How old is Trump now? Shout it out. What, in his 70s? God bless him for his energy, but man, Lord, give us that zeal in the church. Like John, in old age, calling the church to account. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard crystallized in the gospel. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you. Notice how close the parallel here to John's gospel, right? He says, which is true in him. See, that's the interpretive key to the newness of the command. It's because of all the ways in which Christ now has changed the command. You see, in a sense, heightened it, if anything. He says, it's true in him and it's true in you, us, Christians, new covenant believers, we have the actual truth of the newness of this command in us, in our dispensation, in our covenantal arrangement, in the new covenant. The church has this command. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That phrase right there, whoa, huge theological statement. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What then did John envision for the church? If this is such that loving your brother is tantamount to walking in light or walking in darkness or the lack thereof, what is the obligation? That's what we need to know. But first, let's just keep looking at this command. The command is situated in a covenantal context, number one. That was all introduction. Here we go. Ready? So, <laughs> four points on the nature of the command, okay? Number one, this command is in a covenantal context. I love, one of the things I love doing in preaching and in just studying and in writing is I love to distinguish Christian virtue. You know what I mean by that? In other words, I love to distinguish it from all others. I love to draw out the uniqueness of it. I like to separate it. 
I like to discriminate against all other virtues like love or peace or grace and show how that in Christ, those things are unlike anything you find anywhere else. And in this context, remember the context, beloved. John 13, beginning in verse 1, we are at the, la- we are at the, uh, the Lord's Supper. This is the Last Supper. This is the covenantal meal where he will formulate the new covenant with his people. And it also draws up the fact that we are in ecclesiastical territory, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. So this doctrine, this love command, is situated within the covenant, within the doctrine of the church, and that's the way that it's supposed to be lived out. Matter of fact, you even have church discipline here, right? Because right before he says here what he says about this new command, what is the context? Judas Iscariot is going to betray him. The one who eats and dips his bread will betray me, right? And what, what happens here? Did you go? You see verse 31? Therefore, when he, i.e. Judas, when Judas had gone out, and so what happens is, is Judas is removed from the covenant community. And when the covenant community is cleansed, then the command is given to love one another. See how he purified that? Jesus wants a pure church consisting of regenerate church membership. And it reminds us, therefore, that what Jesus envisions here is not a mere moralistic cultural love. It is not a generic love of friendship. It's not a generic love of family. It is deeper than that. It is a distinctly Christian love by virtue of its covenantal character and by virtue of its ecclesiastical foundations. This command is covenantal. Number two, The command is Christological, and here we have, if we go from the context of the command to the example of the command, the Christological example of the command is given us here in this entire chapter. Go back to verse 15 of chapter 13. What does it say? For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. In other words, by serving as Jesus, think of it now with me, by girding himself lowering himself, washing the disciples' feet. He's giving us the paradoxical picture of love. A love, brothers and sisters, listen now, that is otherworldly, transcendent, and incomparable, meaning you cannot compare it to anything else. There's also something at work here a little bit deeper than just the humility, because when you think about this text, on our mind is that this is part of the humility of Christ. He's, I mean, this is, talk about humility. He took the lowest form of a servant here. He washed the disciples' feet. Who are the disciples? I don't know. Just look at your own heart. You'll find out. Sinners. And yet the holy, sinless, righteous Son of God is washing the feet of dirty, vile, wicked, evil, God-hating sinners. That he transforms. Right? He transforms us. Praise God. 
But there's something more. It's not just the humility of Christ seen in the washing of the disciples' feet, which is quintessential to the nature of Christ in his state of humility, in his earthly session. But brothers and sisters, listen now. There is also the prophetic picture of his state of exaltation, his heavenly session at the right hand of the Father. In other words, listen now, in serving one another, brothers and sisters, we are in essence declaring that we will reign with one another. If Jesus went from humility to exaltation, so will we. So it may seem like we're serving one another now, we're bending backwards for each other, we're humbling ourselves, washing one another's feet. Oh, but you are washing the feet of the prophet, priests, and kings of God's kingdom. The command is also reciprocal. That's the nature of it. Just the little phrase there, focus your attention there. Love one another. Love one another. I remember... uh, Oh, I don't know how long ago that was, Trish. When we went, Trish and I did Greek together. Um, she got straight A's. I got C's and B's, maybe. <laughs> she is so good at taking tests. But I promise you, if we quiz her now, she won't get as high a grade as I will. <laughs> but we were supposed to exegete the book of Colossians together out of the Greek text. And I remember getting on the floor one night. I'm like, okay, I've got to strip everything away because it's so hard. I can't even... Focus, you know, I got every bit of my Greek, you know, like crawling on broken glass, so to speak. It's t- it was tough. Anyway, I remember opening up my Greek uh, text to the book of Colossians, and one of our assignments was to uh, identify as many syntactical relationships in the text as possible. You know, I didn't even get through one verse, and I was literally overwhelmed with the wonder of God's Word. I saw so many exegetical details here. I'm just thinking, you could, you could preach a million sermons. You'll never get to it. What does the psalmist say? Oh, I have seen the limit of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Never ends. And so, this little phrase, jam-packed with theology. Because when we think about it, love one another forces us to confront the reality of love for what it is. So first, you must distinguish what kind of love are you talking about, and we did that. It forces us to acknowledge the individual obligation to love in the word one. Each one. No one off the hook. Nobody slipping through the cracks. No bystanders, no spectators. Everyone engaged in agape. Everyone. It forces us to understand our own individuality within the corporate identity of the body of Christ that you belong to this phenomenon of one another. You're not on your own. So much toxic Christianity today. One of the most toxic forms of Christianity today is the concept of a rogue Christian, a nomad 
wandering about, going from church to church, never finding a home, never finding a pastor, never being in covenant with another church, never joining a church, having membership in a church, never settling down, always being too, too many problems, too many hang-ups, too picky, too doctrinal, too, 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 you know, too many issues, too particular. What's the deal? Jesus says, love one another. <laughs> You're stuck. You're part of the body so long as you claim to be in the body. And also collectively, it forces us collectively to operate upon the plane of a selfless, sacrificial, Christ-like, self-denying servanthood. If you have any interest in this love at all. Whatsoever. And we are not good at it. Oh man, we are not good at it. I'm not. I love my time. And personal time and all of that can get in the way of doing any of this. It's no surprise, therefore, that for the Apostle Paul, one of his most famous passages on the one another's of Scripture is built on the sincerity and the purity of this love. Turn with me there, Romans chapter 12, because here we get into some specifics. Because right now it's like, yeah, well, this is all general, and you're just talking about this abstract theology Okay, you asked for it. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, he gets more specific, but again, he builds it upon the purity of this love, this distinct Christian love, this covenantal love, and he says what? Romans 12, 9. All these are imperatives, commands in the Greek. Let love be without hypocrisy. And so first, purity. Second, Look at, the, look at the, uh, what might seem sort of odd as a proof of that love. Abhor what is evil. That is so undermined today in the church. We don't want to talk like that. Let's just focus on the positive things it's telling us to do, like cook a meal or something, right? Who wants to preach a sermon called Abhor What is Evil? Our culture, I tell you, oh man, our culture. Our Christian culture, forget the culture, our Christian culture takes your breath away. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. When you do that, I would say, you are ready. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Oh, I love that. I love that so much because what it's saying is it's not just a one-off thing. It's not just a quick, sporadic thing. It's a devotion. I mean, try to fulfill this without church membership. I don't know how you're going to do it because it implies accountability. Give preference to one another in honor. Oh, I tell you what, if we're all doing that in the local church, we would just... What a marvelous, and, and to the degree that we have that here in our church, and I think we have a lot of it, of the power, the effectiveness for the gospel, the testimony. Verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence. You want one another's a theology. It's also negative. Don't do this. Don't lag behind in diligence. Brothers and sisters, be very, very suspicious about the spirituality within your own heart. 
it tends, it's like the law of thermodynamics. It's breaking down. It naturally is breaking down. You need to, you need to, uh, you need to inject life into it. You need to interfere with it. You, you need to intrude into your own heart and tell it, no, stop tending toward that. Laziness, spiritual apathy, spiritual lethargy, lukewarm, loveless, cold, no concern. So many Christians, maybe you today, are characterized by that very thing and not characterized by the next phrase. Be fervent in spirit. The word means boil. Do you boil in spirit in the context of one another's in the church? Do you boil for it? That's what Jesus wanted to produce in his disciples. This is what the whole impetus of the command was, to get them boiling, even as he was. And how do you do that? You do that with that eschatological hope in view. You do that knowing that by my serving I'm talking about my future glory with this person. So incredible. He says, be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And so for you, your homework is to identify on a piece of paper, where am I serving the Lord? How am I serving the Lord? Right? I remember testimony. John MacArthur gave a testimony of a guy that was dying, he was on his deathbed, and he sought out John MacArthur. I don't know how he heard of him or what, but he said, I need to talk to John MacArthur before I die. <laughs> so John MacArthur went and uh, talked to him, and he gets saved right there on his deathbed, makes a strong profession of faith, and he looks at John MacArthur and he says, what can I do for my Savior? I mean, the guy's on his deathbed dying. He can't even get out of, the death, out of his bed. And his heart was longing to do something for him. And that's what I would say for every one of us. Do something for him. Get busy about the kingdom. Don't get so absorbed. Be careful, all of us, absorbed in this American and Frisco is right there. I see these in, this Indian population. I don't know about you guys, but my neighborhood looks like Mumbai. Just being serious. And I watch these Indians. They're, you know, they're immigrating here from India for all the tech jobs and everything else. And they worship American culture. Oh, they love their little Teslas. They're so happy to buy a house. It's just another idol they added to their pantheon of gods. And they bow in service to the American culture, thinking that technology and drywall is going to make them happy. But what happens when they face their maker and they go into eternity without Christ? Then Jesus will say, you were rich towards the world, but you were poor towards God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be zealous about the right things, about the things of the Lord, rejoicing in hope, 
Rejoicing, rejoicing is ho- in hope is very important because we all, we're, you know, Christians are professional whiners. Because we, let's face it, we have a lot to whine about. Sickness, not feeling well, not doing well, job, finances, kids, family, marriage, uh, culture, uh, your own sin. I mean, there's plenty to whine about. What are you going to rejoice in? Then you have to have an indomitable hope that will supplement, that will substitute all the reasons to whine and to complain. Ah, rejoice! Right in the face of it. Stare into the hurricane of discouragement with the joy of hope. That's what you got to do. Persevere in tribulation. Be devoted to prayer. Wow. I uh, got a text message yesterday by a good friend of mine. He says, hey, he was kind of joking. I don't know if you have a prayer life anymore, <laughs> but I'm going on a trip. Please pray for me. Pray for my family and I. And he said, and if I die, you're preaching my funeral, so you better preach. <laughs> That's what the text was. I thought, a prayer life. Where's our prayer life? Having a prayer life. Being devoted to prayer with one another. I mean, that's the power of the church right there. I stand, I stand aghast sometimes at a pastor's conference, the shepherd's conference that I go to. No one to blame. Don't, don't go tell on me or anything. But what I'm saying is, here we are, 5,000 pastors at the Shepherd's Conference, the most famous, powerful preachers in the world getting ready to speak. And you know how much time we all, in light of all the evil around us, you know how much time we devote to prayer as pastors at the pinnacle of pastors' conferences? Nothing. I say we should be on our knees for one session. Weeping for our churches, our family, our culture. Where's the weeping? Where is the calling heaven down? I mean, how many times can Steve Lawson yell at me before I do something about it? You see what I'm saying? And look, I saw a video once. A brother of mine does a lot of ministry in Brazil. He showed me a video with Brazilian Pentecostals a conference of Brazilian Pentecostals that I think have horrible theology. And there they are for four hours fasting, weeping, and sobbing over the immorality in Brazil. Just weeping from the stage. And it was, I mean, it moved me. It it seemed, you know, it wasn't like, you know, Benny Hinn, Hokey, you know. Isn't he getting right? Anyway, I don't know, I don't know. I need to check with Robert, social media stuff. But I just saw it and I said, when will we do that? What's it going to take? What is it going to take? Do we need a carnival flowing through our streets, parades and people doing the most debauched things out in public to drive us down to our knees? What's it going to take? If we are devoted to prayer, that means we're serious about prayer. If we're devoted to prayer, that means we are awake about the need for prayer. And if we're devoted to prayer, that means we have faith that it works. 
and that it's not in vain. You're not praying at the carpet. You're not praying at the ceiling. You're not praying at the paint on the walls. You are praying to the living God, contributing to the needs of the saints. I love that. See a need? Fill it. Don't see a need and go, someone else will do this. See the need? Fill it. You know, the Fourier out there, filthy. we got a church that comes in before us. Stuff everywhere. Crumbs. Cupcakes. Who knows? Don't touch it. <laughs> you see that? Clean it. Grab a broom. Sweep it up. Just little things that we just sort of, we don't think about. I know you're going to go home and think, ah, it was all right, but that whole thing about sweeping the foyer, that was a bit too much for me. And this one, brothers and sisters, let me, let me pray that a trend will start in our church. Ready? Last injunction. Practicing hospitality. You know, some of you excel at this. There are members of our church that go through the church roles and they just go family by family, family by family. They have a plan. This family, this week we're having this family. In a couple weeks we're going to have this family over here. In another week we're, we're taking this family in. And then have a plan for hospitality. Bring them over for what? For food? No. I mean, I hope you have good food when I get there. But <laughs> even more than that, for Bible reading, for prayer, for fellowship, for agape, for real time on the spiritual plane. One of the complaints that I get from people that come from other churches, no, no, seriously, it's consistent throughout the years, is that one of the things they struggle with is that the, the nature of fellowship at a lot of churches is non-spiritual. It's about sports, the weather, kids, family, shopping, food, gluten-free, whatever but it's hardly ever on the spiritual plane. Come over. I'll cook you a steak if you tell me what you're learning about theology. I'll cook you a meal if you come and tell me what the Lord's been teaching you about your sanctification and how you're growing in wisdom and knowledge and grace. See, we need to feast on that while we're feasting. And so I hope that that is something you all, all the members of our church, we will take ownership of that. Remember being at John Piper's conference in 2003. Me, I took a team of guys with me. We went to Piper's uh, Desiring God conference, went to a church. Nobody knows us from Adam. As soon as one of the sermons was over, guy turns around. He's got a broken leg. He's got a leg in a cast. And he says, hey, who are you guys? And we, okay, this is who we are. Okay, great. You're coming to my house across the street. I'm barbecuing for you guys. Let's go. What? You got a broken leg. I was a Marine, man. Let's go. <laughs> he was. And, but look at that. How glorious is that? That dude doesn't know us from Adam. And he's just like, you're all coming over. I'm making you burgers and hot dogs. And we're going to talk about the things of God. Oh, and by the way, John Piper lives a couple houses down. You want to go? <laughs> he did. And we're like, yeah, let's go. I want to see where John Piper lives. And I saw where John Piper lived, and he lived in the ghetto, in the ghetto. Uh, newfound respect. <laughs> I don't have time to do the rest of what I wanted to do today because um, 
I've been preaching too long on the first couple points, but there's one last thing. Not, not only that the command is reciprocal, and that is the nature of it, brothers and sisters, but the command is also missional, and that is the purpose of it. I want to read to you a quote by Herman Ritterboss in his amazing theological commentary on the book of John when he says this, by their mutual acts of service and self-denial for one another in the Christian community, They may evoke the image of Jesus in his self-sacrificial love for sinful humanity. Again and again, everything is referred to his love as the great underlying secret from which the church not only derives its unity, but also as that which alone can redeem a lost world. For God and for one another. So what Ritterboss is saying there is two things. Number one, the secret power of the church is its love and its unity. And beneath that is the image of Christ. And what he's saying is when we do this for each other, we are evoking, we are painting a picture even of Christ to the world. And so how does the text in John end? Let's finish there. John 13, 36. Remember what it says? No, no, no. Yes. John 13, 35. Sorry. Oh, I want to, I want to, I, I, you know, I can skip a lot of my notes, but I can't skip this. Brothers and sisters, this is so glorious because I think we've misread this. I mean, sometimes we may have. I don't know. You tell me. Verse 35, by this, all men, watch this now, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It doesn't say all men will profess that you are my It doesn't say all men will trust in the gospel because you're my disciples. It doesn't mean all men will convert because you are my disciples, but there is an accountability that the world has in witnessing Christian agape. They come to the point where they realize this group, much as I don't like them, much as, you know, I'm liberal, they're conservative, forget you. You know, I vote for her, you voted for him. We're on the opposite side of everything say whatever they want to say. They can mock us. They can scoff at us. They can laugh at us. They can cry or scream or do whatever you will. But Jesus, almighty Jesus, gives us this assurance that when we walk out in this love, brothers and sisters, the world knows that we are his disciples. Isn't that glorious? You know what's going on at UNT right now? Can I tell you guys something? What's happening? UNT is a hyper-liberal campus. Even the liberals' kids, they tell me, why are you here? Don't you know this campus is liberal? Go preach at a conservative campus. I'm like, that's why I'm here. But, but what's going on right now, this is a crazy phenomenon, what's going on right now, is that I have a bunch of the, uh, of the uh, uh, um, students on campus that are coming up, and they're like bef- kind of like bef- befriending me or whatever, you know? And a lot of the black students on campus are coming up. It's like, Hey, Amelia, what's going on? Hey, what's going on, man? Hey, big hugs and stuff. And the, the kids, they don't know what to do because, you know, they're supposed to be, you know, woke. And in this culture, you know, it's kind of like, uh, we can't really speak against that because he's black and he likes the preacher. I can't speak against a black person because then I'm not liberal anymore. <laughs> you see how jacked up our culture is? 
But I tell you what it does. It shows that there's Christian love here. They can't explain it. It doesn't make any sense. You look too cool to like him. And they know in their heart of hearts it's because we are his disciples. And if we can produce that in the heart and mind of our neighbor, then we have loved one another. We have done our job. And God is glorified in his church. Let's pray. Father, oh Lord, we thank you so much for the command that you've given us through the Lord Jesus. We're grateful, Lord, because you didn't just say, do it. But Jesus lived it. Jesus modeled it perfectly in his divine condescension. And if Jesus can wash our feet, how dare we not want to wash each other's feet by the way that we serve each other in all of these ways, by the way that we pray, the way that we are hospitable, the way that we serve one another, the way that we minister to one another, comfort and console one another, encourage one another, and admonish one another because we need it. Thank you, Lord, for the means of grace that through fellowship our soul is helped. And Lord, it's only through fellowship that we're going to make it. It's only through fellowship that we're going to stimulate one another for love and good works all the way to the end, even more and more and more as we see the day approaching.